On occasion, in the last few months, we have been um, in a series looking at the book of Revelation, and we've looked at a, a number of different visions. There are some some big and very dramatic uh, visions. We've already looked at the uh, the vision of the seven seals, um, the vision of the seven trumpets, and the vision of the seven signs, or the, the seven histories. Uh, we now are going to look at uh, a fresh vision, uh, and uh, that kind of is introduced in chapter 15, it goes on into chapter 16 as well. So we're going to read through that, and then we'll get stuck in. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore gold sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. And I heard a loud voice. From the temple saying to the seven angels, go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake, And keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. 
And they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. More and more, as we come into the book of Revelation, it is resembling a disaster movie. Um, so all the more appropriate that this is the one place in the whole book that we hear the word Armageddon. Um, Bruce Willis is not here. Um, but, but the drama, the, the, the climax, the tension um, really belongs in that kind of, of, of setting. Now if you want to sum up the, the message of the book of Revelation... In four words, um, which we've looked at before, but is worth reminding us of just at the outset here. Uh, the message is this. God wins, we worship. God wins, and we worship. And we'll see how that applies into the life of the, of the churches to whom uh, John was originally writing this letter, and also uh, also to us as well. Now... This vision, it follows the same pattern that we've seen before. When we had the seals and when we had the trumpets, there are seven of something. And we get one at a time a description of what happens. And this vision, again, is the same. It's it's covering the whole of AD history. Um, The moment from Jesus returning to heaven to him coming again is, is contained here. Heaven's perspective on the whole of the last 2,000 years of history and, uh, and all that's to come before Jesus, uh, Jesus returns. So we've seen um, in these previous visions that seven of something happens. So we've had seven seals, seven trumpets now, seven bowls. And the tension all the way through mounts. The sense of drama, the sense of crisis. Remember, this is apocalyptic language. It's highly vivid. Lots of images that are striking and bizarre and not necessarily to be interpreted in a scientific or literal way, but they're conveying something that is totally uh, dramatic and awesome, indeed even frightening. And we get to the, you tend to get to the sixth The sixth thing, the sixth bowl, and then it's like Jesus just brings his people aside with an interlude, speaks to his people, just as the tension has got to its highest point, the sixth bowl or the sixth trumpet has has sounded, the sixth bowl has been poured out, can it get any worse? The seventh bowl comes and it's like, oh, well, we'll see at the end. A loud voice says, it is done. And so we're going to follow it through in that kind of way. We're going to look at the first six bowls first. We'll look at this interlude, this moment where Jesus draws his people aside and speaks to them directly with a message that he wants them to hear. And then we'll look at the uh, the seventh bowl uh, briefly at the end. So the first 
six bowls. Here is a scene yet again of, of judgment. Of judgment that's even more severe than we've seen before. When, when the seven seals were broken, we saw that on the whole, a quarter of the earth or a quarter of the sea, a quarter was affected by what happened. When the trumpet sounded a few chapters ago, we saw that 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 proportion had increased slightly. Now it was a third. A third of the earth was being impacted um, by the trumpets. Now we, we see in the bowls actually everything. The whole earth is affected by um by the contents of these bowls. It's, it's a chapter that is it's filled with a lot of blood. There, there's a lot of blood in this chapter, or in these, these chapters, and the contents of these bowls, when the wrath of God is, is poured out. We see severe judgment. And it can seem... Well, is God bloodthirsty? In the same way that excuse the metaphor or the simile, in the same way that a vampire is bloodthirsty. A vampire just always seeks out blood. It can never be satisfied. It's insatiable. It's got an appetite for blood. Is, is God like that in a, in a kind of bloodthirsty way? An insatiable desire just to bring punishment and which will never be satisfied. Is God like that, always on the lookout for Someone to victimize. Well, absolutely not. We see in this that actually there's a measure when it says that God's wrath is completed by these last plagues. Actually, this completes, this completes history. It completes wrath. Uh, it's not kind of just overflowing forever. It's, it's specific. It's the contents of specific bowls. You know, 21st century Western Christians could read this passage and ask themselves the question, where is the God of love? I thought this Christian God of yours was a God of love. Oh yes, he is. A God of abounding love, who's actually slow to, uh, slow to anger and abounding in compassion. We began to see that last time. We saw that actually God is more compassionate about the whole population of the world than we will ever be. So a 21st century question, perhaps a question that springs to mind for many of us perhaps who live a life that is basically comfortable, where no great trials or disasters have taken place, we might actually think, well, where is the God of life? That's a question that we might ask in our culture, in our day and age. But remembering that this is a, a book that was first written not to 21st century believers, although it is uh, to us too, but it was written to 1st century Asian churches. Churches in modern-day Turkey, again, who are going through a hard time. And for them, perhaps they weren't asking, where is the God of love? But they were asking, where is the God of justice? I thought this God was just. I thought he would punish evil and reward righteousness. We've we've seen that already in the book. So if we go back to Revelation chapter six, in the vision of the of the seals, 
uh, Revelation 6 and chapter 10, we, we see, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 10. Um, we see there uh, in that vision the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. In other words, people who'd lost their lives because they follow Jesus. And what's the question they're asking? It's a similar one. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? It's a cry for justice. How long, O Lord, are you going to leave it until you bring justice? It's not kind of mindless um, vengeance. It's a sense of, where's, where's justice? And uh, the prophet Habakkuk, asked a very similar question. As he looked around in his nation, he saw violence, he saw hostility, he saw one problem after another. He saw a nation that should have been worshipping God, but they were worshipping other gods instead. Habakkuk asks his question to God in, in Habakkuk 1 verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? So the question that believers were facing then, they were painfully aware that they were in the minority. They were painfully aware they could lose their lives for their faith. They were painfully aware others already had done so, been killed for following Jesus. Their question, where's, where's the God of justice? And the answer is right here, right here. There are phrases that crop up in these couple of chapters that show us yeah, it's the God of justice who's here, not the God who's just got a bad temper, the God, the God who's bloodthirsty for no reason. It's the God of justice. We see that in chapter 15 and verse 3. It says, Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. A little bit further on, the same Words are, are used in, in chapter 16 and verse 5. You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. And since it's the book of Revelation, we shouldn't be then very surprised when an altar speaks in verse 7. What does the altar say? Yes, Lord God, true and just are your judgments. God is concerned about what is right. God is concerned about what is just. God is concerned then. In this passage we see he brings, he does bring punishment, but he brings punishment that fits the crime. He brings punishment that is just. He's concerned with what is right. And so we see in verse 2 of chapter 16, there are, there are people who have preferred to be marked by the beast as opposed to God. They're putting their security in what the world offers. Ultimately, they are worshipping anything else other than God. So they've got the mark of the beast. Well, then, they are also marked by these ugly and painful sores. A little bit further on, we see in verse 6, again, God's justice is at work because the people being judged are those who have shed the blood of saints and prophets, people who have killed. 
And God brings just punishment. You have given them blood to drink as they deserve. It's, it's measured. It's a measured, holy, just response to evil on this planet. And again, remembering that's into the situation in which John was first writing. A church, believers that were very much in the minority, under pressure to compromise their faith. They were standing firm. So many of them, we've seen in the early chapters of Revelation, were, were commended for standing and being faithful, following Jesus, not throwing away their faith, not bowing down to worship Caesar. And for them, the question is, where is the God of justice? This reminds us again, God wins and we worship. So what should be our response? Well, again, I wonder whether John in writing this book, Jesus in writing it to us, was addressing believers who didn't feel like worshipping God very much today. Didn't feel like the circumstances of their life really warranted um, or made it easy to really praise and worship God. And God here, in this passage, is reminding his people, look, I have a track record of being just. I have a track record of dealing, responding to injustice. And I know exactly What's going on in your life? I know what injustice you personally may be facing in your life. Now, again, I'm saying, you know, perhaps for us, we don't naturally think, where is the God of justice? In that we don't live in a society which has experienced much first-hand atrocities. There are nations of the world, however, that know what it is to lose loved ones to genocide. And you imagine, I think they would be in touch with this question. Where is the God of justice? I think they would be entitled to ask. We may not kind of frequently think in those terms, or we may not have those kind of experiences. However, there can be people in this room, and actually you know that tomorrow you might be stepping back into a situation, maybe in your workplace or elsewhere, that actually feels tremendously unjust. God is reminding his people. I am a God of justice. He's reminding his people of his track record. You see, so much of what's written here echoes what God did for his people in the book of Exodus. What happened in the book of Exodus? Well, God's people are living in Egypt. And the Pharaoh and the Egyptians have seen that God is blessing them. They're very numerous and they're perceived then to be a threat And so they are enslaved, they're harshly treated, they are oppressed day after day, even to the point where their babies are being killed. There are people who are then crying out to God, where's the God of justice? God, hear our cry. God speaks to Moses, and what does he say? I've heard their cry, and I'm going to deliver them. So I'm saying to you, Go to Egypt. What does God do? God encounters, Moses encounters, a Pharaoh with a hardened heart. Let my people go so they might worship me in the desert. And what does Pharaoh say? No, 
These are my people. I will do with them as I please. Their situation even gets worse. The injustice increases. Their labor gets harder still. Oh, this is getting even worse. The tension is building. Well, you can see that in this book here in Revelation. The tension is building. The cost involved in following Jesus appears to be getting worse. It appears to be getting even harder. And so what does God say? Uh, what does God do? He sends, he sends plagues. He demonstrates righteous judgment. Back in the book of Exodus, he sends a whole variety of plagues. And so, again, re- reading the book of Revelation, we're not necessarily, we're not being led to interpret this literally or, or in, a, in a scientific way that says, okay, in 2010, there'll be lots of people who get ugly and painful sores. In 2011, um, something's going to happen to the sea and it will turn to, to blood. In, in 2000, you know, it, it, we're not to view it in that way. It's echoing something. Ah, oh, there's, oh, there's, there's painful sores. Well, there was a plague of boils in, in Exodus. Um, water's turning to blood. Yeah, I think that happened back then uh, too. Um, the sun was turned into, into darkness. Okay, well, the sun is affected here, but it, it doesn't become dark so much as getting even hotter. But again, there, well, there is darkness. Yes, there was a plague of darkness in Exodus. There was even a plague of frogs, and we get mention of frogs. There was a plague of hailstones, uh, hail and we get a plague of hailstones here. What is it saying? Not literally these things aren't necessarily exactly going to happen in some very ordered and chronological way, but actually God brings judgment And God rescues his people. At the very point, it got, it got so tense. And the, 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 the Hebrew people, again, feeling a, a defeated minority, they would never have felt like they were on the winning side. They had to flee from Egypt. After all these plagues, even then, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he wouldn't let them go. And they flee, they run for their lives. But even then, Pharaoh pursues them. And with chariots. And they're in this desperate situation. And the sea is on one side. They can't go that way. And they're being hemmed in by chariots that are hunting them down in the other direction. They are in a desperate situation. But then, what does God do? God dries up the waters They pass through to the other side. Pharaoh and his chariots are washed away as the waters then come back. And you know what happens there? You can read in Exodus 15. Moses leads the people of God in worship. He leads them in a song of praise. What happens here? The people in chapter 15 at the beginning there are standing beside the sea and they're singing a song of praise. A victorious people. They never felt victorious in life. They felt hard pressed on every side. They're aware of one injustice after another. The cost of being God's people was actually increasing all the time. Life was getting more and more difficult. It was getting more and more difficult for those Hebrews. Actually, in some ways it's likely to get through the course of history more and more difficult for people who follow Jesus. Um, that was going on. And then God does something glorious. He, he, he opens up the sea. They pass through and they worship. And God is saying, look, it's going to be like that. When the end comes, 
you'll see. However you feel right now, whatever the circumstances of your life right now, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you through and you'll be stood with me in glory beside some majestic and mysterious glassy sea that John kind of sees but can't quite describe still. And we'll worship God. We'll see then the great victory of God. In the here and now, perhaps, sometimes, we don't feel like worshipping. Perhaps sometimes we do not feel very victorious. Singing songs of praise can seem like whistling in the dark. The spiritual equivalent of putting on a brave face. And it's at that point we need to be reminded of heaven's perspective. There is this great exodus to come. There will be a rescue. It's, it's still hard to read this passage. And what seems clear is, again, just as Pharaoh's heart was hardening more and more, for some, through the course of history, their heart will be hardened more and more. God is bringing judgment. Now, for some people, they're singing, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? There are people who are being drawn to Jesus. I think, oh yes, this awesome God of love and justice and holiness. And yet, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? So throughout AD history, there are those who are coming to Jesus. There are coming those who are coming to, to taste and see for themselves that God is good. There are others who are going in the other direction and their hearts are becoming more and more hard. And so we see that here. These judgments are happening in in the world, and there are people who are refusing to repent, refusing to glorify him. But again, this vision presents it even more intensely. They are cursing God, uh, and very much turned away from him. Again, maybe God is just speaking to a little church and saying, don't be surprised If that happens, there'll be many who will come and receive salvation and who will love and follow Jesus. But don't be surprised if in some situations you come across incredible hostility. And we see that perhaps, uh, and, and we might see that perhaps develop more in our society. So the first six bowls, yes, severe and horrendous judgment, but a reminder, God is just. God wins. God is to be worshipped. God is to be trusted. You know, whatever circumstances of life might be right now, heaven's perspective allows us, enables us, opens our eyes that we see God, we see what the future holds, and we worship in light of who God is. And maybe today is a day for some of us just to be reminded God is just. He hear, he heard the cry of the Hebrews and they needed an exodus. And he hears our cry as well. Now with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to head into that situation that feels tremendously unjust tomorrow morning and everything is going to be completely fine. Well, actually you might encounter such situations that are worse, but God is saying, but I'm just. I am the God of justice. We meet then an interlude. After the sixth bowl, Jesus wants to bring his people aside with this really specific word. You know, often Christians want to know when will Jesus 
return. Okay, God, you're, you're telling us that you're coming back. You're telling us there'll be this exodus. You're telling us that you're in control of world history. You're telling us that there'll be this day when we'll be with you in glory and we'll be worshipping you forever. You tell us that there's a, a, a day coming when you're going to bring the whole of history to its climax. But when's it going to be? We want to know. It's like the sixth bowl has just been poured out. Life is really intense right now. That We see demonstrated on the, this planet um, a life where it's difficult to really live for God. It's, it involves a cost. We want to stay faithful to you, Jesus, and follow you. When are you coming back? Because it would really help us to know. Maybe that would help us to, to prepare, to get ready. In the same way that, you know, if you... Uh, if you go out to work, you say, you can expect me home, love, at half past five. It's helpful to know. So things can be uh, got ready or whatever. You think, well, it's understandable then that believers want to ask that question. The disciples asked it in Matthew 24. Um, and in a number of places, um, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Matthew 24 uh, and verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives... Um, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They, they wanted to know. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, though we won't look there right now, that Paul wanted, needed to address this as well. Perhaps they were asking questions. When, when's the date? When's he coming? Um, we want to just, it, it would give us a sense of security if we knew. Um, when he was coming back. And Jesus' answer to that question comes in verse 15. Well, it's not really an answer, but it's what we need to hear. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may go naked and be shamefully exposed. Well, thanks very much. That still doesn't tell us when he's coming back. In fact, it tells us that he's gonna, the way that Jesus returns will be like a thief in the night. John Stott writes, I don't know if you've spotted this in your own experience, the trouble with burglars is that they do not tend to tell us when they are coming. They're not in the habit of sending a postcard. Uh, I'm in your area uh, on Tuesday as it happens. I'll pop around about three o'clock. Oh, that would be great. Um, we'll put the kettle on, unless that's what you want to take away. Um, so, uh, so Jesus' coming is deliberately unexpected. Jesus is deliberately not going to say, here it is. And sometimes, again, people use the book of Revelation to start making ludicrous predictions about when, when will the battle of Armageddon be? When will Jesus come back? And, okay, yes, uh, mm, how, how long will these bowls take? Maybe the first bowl takes six months and the second bowl. Right, oh, we can start to trace out history. Well, how would that actually help us? I'll tell you what it does. All it does is bring fear. All it does is means we, we kind of look fearfully uh, at the news. We look fearfully at current affairs. We look fearfully at what's happening in the nation. And uh, I think oh, maybe some armies are going to have to amass somewhere in the Middle East and there'll be this huge, awesome showdown and then Jesus will turn up. Right, we'll wait for that point to happen then. Well, it just breeds fear. Jesus is saying, I come 
unexpectedly. So, blessed is he who stays awake. There are seven statements in the book of Revelation that start with the word blessed, where Jesus says, blessed are the, and this is the third one of them. Blessed is he who stays awake. I mean, I've got to be perfectly honest, that doesn't always sound like a blessing, does it, if it was to be interpreted literally. Blessed is the insomniac. Um, blessed is the person whose neighbours are too noisy. Um, blessed whatever. You think, again, it's not saying that. It's saying blessed are people who are faithfully following Jesus. In the book of Revelation, falling asleep means kind of just forgetting that we're following Jesus. Uh, forgetting to, uh, to live life his way. Keeping clothes with you. That's about not compromising with a culture that worships anything apart from God. So this is encouraging us to always be, in your, in your Christian life, always be in a state of readiness for the return of Jesus. This past year has seen the impressive exploits um, of one Mr. Bradley Wiggins. Um, he won the Tour de France. He won a gold medal, or maybe even more than one, I can't remember. Um, and then, to top it all off, he won the Sports Personality of the Year. Um, apparently, his method of training is different to most other cyclists. Forgive the metaphor if you have no interest in bikes. Um, most cyclists preparing for something like the Tour de France would actually fatten up over winter. And then as the summer approaches, they're kind of, they're getting lean. They're getting into shape. And they might get involved in a couple of competitions, not with the hope of winning those ones. It's all just part of their preparation. Maybe other athletes are the same. I don't plan to win that. I'm, I'm trying to win the Tour de France. And so bit by bit, I'm getting ready. And I'm not ready at Christmas. And I'm not ready in January. I'm not ready in February. I'm not ready in March. I'm not ready in April. Hopefully, I'm ready when the competition comes. Apparently, Mr. Wiggins' approach to training was completely different. His approach was to always be in peak condition. For there never to be a particular month when he wasn't in tip-top shape. And so he started winning things. And people said, you're peaking too soon. You'll never win the Tour de France if you try and win the Tour to something else. But he was following a different training regime. He was always in a state of readiness. And in a sense, that's what's being said to us. Now, what that means is not for us to panic. Oh, goodness, I have to achieve my life's work every day. Um, so the, the joke goes that a, a cardinal rushes up to the Pope and said, Jesus is coming back. He's, he's coming up the path. And uh, what should we do? And the Pope says... Quick, everybody look busy. Um, Jesus is coming back. It could be any day. It doesn't mean panic stations, everyone. It's not like an Ofsted. It's not like the inspector's coming and you've suddenly got to... It just means, no, every day living a life that's following Jesus. And uh, maybe it's possible for us to sometimes think more in terms of faith for the future. In the future... Once I've finished my exams, maybe once I've 
got past and I've graduated. Or in the future, when the kids are a little bit older. Or in the future, you know, when, I, when I'm, I'm no longer um, living at home with mum and dad, when I've got my own place, maybe when I, when I move, move town and uh, I kind of set up and I've got more independent lifestyle or whatever. In the future, I will serve God. In the future, I'll, I'll, I'll probably do something spectacular. And we can kind of have faith for the future, where God is kind of saying, have faith for today. Have faith for what today involves. When, when is the time to serve God faithfully in whatever he gives you to do? It's today. When is the time to encourage someone else? Well, the Bible says, encourage each other daily. It's, it's today. When is the time to get right with God? It's today. When is the time to turn back to him and make sure that we don't get a hardened heart? That is today. Oh, there's so much going on right now. I'm just going to push that into the future. I'm just going to think about that tomorrow. I think, well, that's okay. But in terms of making plans for the future, having an idea about what the future might involve. But we're called to live a life of humble following Jesus today. And that doesn't mean panic stations. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean worrying. It means I'm going to faithfully follow him. Whatever today involves. Maybe that just means faith for the humdrum. Faith for the ordinary. Faith for whatever today involves. So we've seen this, this big grand arching theme. God wins. We worship. Well, yes, we're looking forward to a, to a great day to come. But we're living today. And so what God is concerned about is not that we start puzzling about when exactly Jesus will come back. Will it, will it, will it be next year? Will it, will it be in a few decades? Will it be in a thousand years? God doesn't kind of give us the book of Revelation so that we might puzzle over these things. Well, maybe in this process get a bit fearful. God gives us this book just to help us and encourage us. Blessed. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Blessed is the one who's kind of living ready. Blessed is the one who's not leaving it until tomorrow to get right. The New Testament is full of these exhortations, these encouragements to keep moving on, keep advancing. And so it is worth asking the question, if Jesus returned today, would he find us alert? Would he find us awake? Would he find us pressing on? Yeah, he's not calling us to get into worry. He's just calling us to faithfully serve him. So uh, in Luke 12, where Jesus says something very, very similar. In Luke chapter 12, verse 39. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour... Uh, the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants, to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. 
I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat his men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. It's saying, again, Jesus is, is coming. We're not to think, oh, it doesn't, today doesn't really matter. What matters is the future. That matters today. So again, when, when is the best time to turn back to God? It's today. When is the best time to really seek to bring encouragement in someone else's life? They might run the race well today. When is the when is the right time just to seek to be, be diligent in serving God in what He's given you to do today? When is the right time just to demonstrate in your work plot uh, in your workplace, perhaps to a boss who isn't very just, what it means to follow Jesus diligently and faithfully? Whenever you, you know, it's just great. You know, why, as I see people, as people just see you living, loving your husband, loving your wife, loving your children, honouring your parents, um, working hard in, in your workplace, not kind of giving in to stuff that the world just takes for granted. Well, there goes another faithful follower of Jesus, patiently persevering in what God's given them to do uh, today, awake and pressing on. We see the seventh bowl and the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Now, again, the tension has been building and perhaps it's at this point where we're still kind of expecting some massive battle, some massive tussle to 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 kick off. And what happens? A loud voice from the throne says it is done. Another wonderful reminder that God is victorious. God is in control. That great loud voice echoes another loud voice that's already shouted out something similar. It is finished. Was what Jesus mustered up strength to call out in a loud voice from the cross before he gave out his spirit. And what did he mean by that? Well, Jesus had taken upon himself, God the Son, had taken upon himself uh, the fullness of God's wrath for sin. And he said, it's finished. And so the appeal remains here. There's going to be another time when a loud voice will declare from the throne of God saying, it is done. But in the meantime, there's still opportunity for people to receive for themselves the wonders of God's forgiveness. Again, we've seen these uh, these severe and horrific, really, Descriptions of judgments, but it's possible to know instead the riches and the wonders of God's grace, his forgiveness, his freedom. And then that we will join with that victorious company in heaven, beginning of chapter 15, uh, held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, great and marvelous are your deeds. Uh, another reminder, God wins and we worship. God is just and we worship. God is coming back 
And we seek to worship him. We seek to worship him in all situations, all circumstances of life. We seek to worship him in our day-to-day life. And we seek to worship him knowing that ultimately and over all things, God is victorious. So what is our response today? Let's worship our God. And let's pray.